Hello and welcome to the VJ Himong podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. We were thrilled to welcome the experts on our first ever MPN sessions to discuss the latest updates in myeloproliferative neoplasms following the 2020 Texas MPN workshop. In this exclusive panel discussion, Ruben Mesa from UT Health, San Antonio MD Anderson Cancer Center is joined by Claire Harrison of Guys and St. Thomas NHS Foundation Trust and Naveen Pimaraju from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center to discuss the exciting updates in the field of MPNs, including learnings following COVID-19, mutations and molecular definitions of disease, therapeutic strategies and takeaways from the 2020 Texas MPN workshop. Hello, my name is Ruben Massa and I'm the director of the Mace Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. And I'm joined today for this wonderful discussion by my good friend and colleague, Claire Harrison from Guys and St. Thomas's in the UK and my meeting co-chair uh, for the first Texas MPN workshop, Nareen Pamaraju. Uh, we uh, acknowledge our, our other co-chair, Dr. Serge Vrstavchek, who is busy as we speak, healing the sick in his very busy MPN clinic. So, uh, so our hats off to, to Serge. But we wanted to get together to debrief a little bit, to think back uh, on this first uh, Texas MPN workshop, what worked well, uh, what we learned, some of the, the sessions. And perhaps I'll kick it off just by, you know, sharing, you know, some thoughts or discussion amongst us really about the platform itself. So this had been initially designed by Naveen, Serge, and I, and at that time, Robin Sherber, with the idea of trying to pull together, you know, expert physicians and scientists in MPNs for more of a workshop sort of approach. You know, based here in Texas, because of both my center and MD Anderson, of course, having our MPN focus, but inviting many friends and colleagues from around the world for a meeting that likely would have, you know, 75 to 150 people max, uh, with really time to have some areas of focus, some longer discussions, ability to really delve into some, some deeper issues. And then, of course, like many meetings, COVID-19 and its uh, overwhelming impact on this year hit. And we thought hard about this and again, felt strongly that with the pace of changes in MPNs, it was important to still have this meeting and that the value in being able to connect hopefully would, would still be there. Uh, and indeed, we were really pleased to see that in some ways it uh, expanded the reach. We had almost 1,400 people participate uh, in over 30 countries. So first, let me, throw, let me throw it to yourself, Claire, who I know you've been on many virtual meetings, even today, as you had mentioned. Share with me some thoughts, both about this meeting, but some of the pluses and minuses you've seen with, with the virtual meetings. This, EHA, some of the larger congresses, but also some of the smaller ones. Well, I think, um, so first of all, I have to congratulate um, the whole team and, and also um, the Brandcast team. It was really uh, fantastic. Um, I think your agenda was very fast paced. I mean, having to do a talk in 10 minutes, that's, that's quite a challenge, right? Because we, we always like to talk about stuff we're really passionate about. Um, I think it's really important that we do continue to meet um, even virtually, and that we do continue to dialogue. Um, we've learned, we learn a lot. We miss the kind of interpersonal discussion, but I think we're all quite practiced now at using these platforms. And we're fortunate enough that this terrible pandemic has struck at a time when you know, we are blessed with Zoom, Teams, you name it. We, we're all quite expert at it. And, but I think your meeting was, you know, very, very broad, very focused. You really had some true um, experts and the flow worked very well. There were no technical glitches. I think um, it was fantastic that you attracted such a big audience. And you know, I have people from across the UK WhatsApping and texting me, telling me about 
how wonderful the meeting was. So, you know, that's something you wouldn't have achieved if, if 75 of us had travelled to Texas. I'm really sorry that I couldn't be there, but, you know, we could still be there, we could still learn, we could still share, we could still think. Um, I think, um, you know, that virtual meetings, for me, they do maintain the contact. You do miss the informality, the chance meetings. Um, but th this is the way it has to be. I think um, EHA, I think for me, was was a great meeting, but it, it went on quite a long time. And um, some of the content that we had planned for EHA, we couldn't have. But we did manage to do some of the things that Ash does as well. So the best of sessions, I think they were good, especially for a broad meeting. I like the way it still keeps us connected. And, you know, for example, I know we'll discuss it later, but Tiziano was able to collect, show you all the data we've managed to collect from across Europe about outcomes for MPN patients. So sharing something like that with a big audience is really important. Wonderful, wonderful. What about, your, what about yourself, Naveen? And maybe, maybe afterwards piggyback a, a bit off of, of, of Claire's introduction of, of that COVID session. I really uh, found it from an audience member standpoint to be, as Claire said, to be really engaging, Ruben. And I know you and I and, and Serge and others, we helped to put it on, but what Claire said was very important. David Steensmar, friend and colleague, wrote this really great editorial in Ash Clinical News about the so-called zombie apocalypse, being online all day for 12, 14 hours and getting drained. I didn't feel that way at our at our conference, and I and I hope we can continue that. So I think engaging online is not as simple as back to back to back uh, lectures. So I think pre-recorded sessions, as Claire said, quick hitter, ten minutes, broken up by live sessions. I have never seen anything like this before. Maybe not even in our real life sessions quite this way. So. To, to that end, I believe this was an amazing experience. I think with COVID-19, the pandemic itself, it's, it's created the situation where we cannot travel, but yet we must get our science to each other. We must exchange ideas and we must debate and have controversial issues. And if we can still do that in some way, then I think we uh, can reach the full potential of what it means to be a scientist. So having sessions on the standard of care on combinations, on novel agents, old agents like interferon, COVID-19 in this session, it really brings together what's old and what's new again, I think to be honest with you in a very interactive way that I have not seen before in many other meetings. Ruben? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I would agree entirely. It's interesting, you know, even some of the things we learned, you know, we had, you know, many of our sessions where we concurrently saw the presenter uh, kind of being taped while, while giving their talk, as well as the slides themselves and really how much more kind of engaging, compelling really to have that level of connection. That and I think the real time, you know, live panels with people being able to put their questions in through chat, you know, was really quite interesting. You know, it allows a little bit, you know, of a dynamic that we've seen in live meetings where again, it, it, it in some ways beats the the process of everyone kind of you know racing to get up to to, to grab a microphone or things of that nature. It, it helps the moderators sort through for a, perhaps a little bit better distribution of questions, you know, as well as you know questions that are more kind of appropriate for the venue. But but why don't we kick it off first with that uh, that COVID session? I think. Uh, that was a particularly unique, uh, where we had the chance to hear directly from, you know, many that have been in the hottest of hotspots, you know, from Tiziano Barbui uh, and Valerio De Stefano that, you know, we all know that Bergamo in particular, you know, had, had a very, very rough go. You know, both in terms of the volume of cases, but how overwhelmed the healthcare system became. Uh, uh, from John Mascarenes, where they got it about as bad as anyone here in the U.S. Fortunately, I, I don't think it got to the the uh, resource constraint issue in the U.S. to the degree that it did in some other parts. I think, in part, due to some of the warning. I think it, it, Claire, maybe you could share. You guys felt kind of somewhere in in the middle, but I know that 
back remembering those texts, it was, it was some pretty tense times. But you, you certainly went through this wave before us in, in the States. So what were some of your takeaway clears or maybe some thoughts, both how that reflected the realities from March and April, but what do you think that might kind of translate to now, you know, in the fall? Uh, so um, thanks, and, and I think actually I just wanted to add something to our discussion about the you know the importance of these meetings. I think the other importance is you know uh, the MPN field. We're all actually good friends. So you know there, there's something about the support of actually and the normality of meeting albeit across the screen, it's really, really important to ground you back into what is it you love about your job and what is it you're passionate about? And we actually, most of us are passionate about patient care, bringing new therapies, learning more, you know, trying to think about what's the next new step. What are they doing in San Antonio that's great? What are they doing in the MD Anderson? What do I want to do in my clinic in London? And, um, I think that was really important. I think in terms of coronavirus, yeah, I think, you know, London, we peaked quite early, really. And um, and we have been really out of our normal practice for quite a long time. So it, it has been helpful to listen to what other people were doing, listening to how they were structuring their service. We learned a lot um, from colleagues in Italy. And we, we also got a lot of hope from them as well, to be honest. I think, um, as we've discussed, I mean, our, our hospital wasn't really overrun, but we did really ramp up our critical care activity and many of us stepped into different roles. So I was able to use my MPN research role into a research support, a research supporting role including taking part in some studies myself um, at Guy's and St. Thomas's. So, you know, that's been really important. Learning about the use of anticoagulation as we've worked together, all of us here actually to set the EHA and also the ASH guidelines. I think that's been really important and that's all facilitated by the virtual world. Thinking about how do we manage our patients? What do we do with therapies and the really important data that Tiziano presented about, you know, not stopping ruxolitinib in a patient that has the coronavirus. is That's a really, really important message. But also equally important is the message that our young patients who perhaps are just on hydroxycarbamide or no therapy or interferon don't seem to be doing terribly badly. So that's also a really important message that I was able to take back immediately and, and share with you know some patients because patients in the UK have had a tough time they've been shielded they haven't been allowed out of their house etc so you know that was really important news for me. And what about yourself Naveen? Clearly Houston has gone through a huge surge with this as well and you guys clearly interacting with many patients both locally but from a distance with telemedicine you know what were some of those takeaways from the session you know, what are some of the things that you think will continue to be the key questions with COVID and MPN patients? Yeah, I really appreciate this discussion. I got a tremendous out of it. Um, I think two major themes popped up for me. One is this concept of COVID as a hematologic, as a blood disease. So I think Dr. Laura from the U.S., uh, our colleague, brought that up a lot. And I've now since seen that really talked about in both the media as well as in our scientific literature. So not just thinking about the viral infection as a respiratory illness, but more as an inflammatory or as a cytokine mediated entity. So as Claire mentioned, you know, thrombosis, all of these things and how it relates through the blood and then directly into our uh, both benign and malignant heme. I really didn't appreciate it until that session. So I thought that was dynamite actually. The second one also brought up by both of you is I really just was blown away, Ruben, by this American-European cross-discussion in that exact session. So seeing what was going on in Italy juxtaposed with the states, talking about it across the world. In this first-of-its-kind meeting, we had 1,300 to 1,400 unique uh, people who logged on and over 30 countries, I believe, represented. So all over the world, we know we had viewers from uh, Algeria and, and, and other places, Australia as well. 
So this concept of best practices, as Claire was mentioning, what are folks doing in their region, their hospital? How can I apply it directly to my practice? Again, this is the highest hopes of any meeting you attend. And often I find it to be inverse with how large the meeting is. So the bigger the meeting, possibly the less direct uh, practice changing things I can bring. Um, but these are some of the things that, that jumped out. And I also want to make a mention of uh, this concept of giving people information in a moving landscape. So uh, again, Laura was able to give some websites. Here's what Ash is saying. Here's what these other websites are saying. And so because these slides will be widely available, people will be able to go back and, and reference them. That was a nice, really nice part of it, Ruben. Great, great. Well, well so that was a, you know, a, really a, a wonderful session. You know, I think with key takeaways that we continue to, to study, you know, one, some reassurance that perhaps ET and PV patients, it's not obvious that they clearly do worse than the general public. You know, as I try to share with my patients, you know, nobody wants this disease. You know, and as we see even our, as our general hospital beds have, have largely emptied out, but our ICU continues to be filled with people who've been on the ventilator for weeks, you know, or have succumbed, you know, passed away on the ventilators. This is a disease nobody wants. You know, this is not like when I was growing up as a kid and, you know, if you got the chicken pox, uh, you know, it was just a rite of passage and there even had chicken pox parties so the kids could just get it over with. You know, this is, this is clearly uh, something that nobody wants. Two, with MPN patients, I think clearly, you know, not uh, changing therapy and clearly not stopping roxolitinib as being important, as well as all of the evolving issues of really how do we optimize, uh, uh, you know, thrombotic prophylaxis. You know, when I have telemedicine, I attend today with patients, you know, I tell them, you know, if you get COVID, contact me because what we know is evolving, you know, and if you get... COVID and you're an outpatient, should we still start you on low molecular weight heparin? I don't think we know, but I think the answer is at least a good maybe. Because we know if you're hospitalized, we would probably put you on low molecular weight heparin. You know, so it's, it's, it's a very much of an evolving piece. Now we discussed a variety of key things at the meeting and maybe next let's pivot a bit toward a bit more of the pathobiology piece. You know, so there were sessions really dealing with, with inflammation, with uh, issues of uh, evolving understanding of mutations, as well as even the, the provocative sort of questions, you know, should we really be thinking about the disease in a molecularly defined way in terms of, you know, is it really JAK2 mutated early MPN versus CalR early mutated uh, MPN or, uh, or not? Maybe let me throw that out to Claire. Some of your takeaways, perhaps, from that session, but as well, you know, I know as well that's been an active discussion. It's an area, you know, where we have you know, a range of opinions. Certainly, you were involved with the efforts with Tony Green and others that kind of looked at, you know, those high-impact papers in terms of that, uh, that piece. Well, what are your thoughts? Well, you see, I think this is this is a really hot topic in the field, actually. And I think um, that presentations are really good, but I think also the discussion. So I think one of the things I wanted to add, one always thinks of something after one said one's piece, it doesn't one, but um, maybe that the panel discussions were really very good. So unlike a normal meeting where you know you get questions after you've done your talk the fact that you put the agenda together so that there was a panel discussion and you had a chair of the panel who was really thinking yes looking at questions and people are less inhibited at sending in questions i think that's really important so i mean my my kind of takeaway from these uh, sessions is that this is really still a moving feast and I, my strong sense is that we will probably redefine these diseases molecularly. And, and we've been thinking for a while now at tackling the beast of uh, the national guidelines in the UK. I know you've, you guys have made a huge effort with NCMN guidelines, but NCCM guidelines. 
but you know I've I've been shying away from the guidelines on ET but I, I'm really increasingly thinking now you know actually and this is what this session made me think you know really is Calor low risk ET really the same as JAK2 low risk ET are we really treating the same disease? And increasingly, I think we probably are not. And I, I think that's one of the key takeaways for me in that session. And then as we move on and think about some of the data that was presented, for example, at EHA, just to kind of draw that meeting in as well, because there's a lot of science presented in that meeting, the data about interferon and how actually the diseases seem to respond a bit differently to interferon is also really, really interesting. I think it's a huge gap in our field at the moment as we look at all of the therapies. I know we'll come to the therapy sessions uh, later, but just really understanding which mutational analysis and maybe which um, what what your immune system is like it can really well be dictating risk and response to therapy in the future. So I, I think that session was absolutely fantastic, very stimulating very thought-provoking, not, not really delivering tons of answers, but very thought-provoking, I think. What do you think, uh, Naveen? Yeah, Claire, I think this is really outstanding what you're putting forward here because I thought the same thing. This concept of CHIP, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, I think was long in the domain of the MDS and AML talks, and I think we nicely were able to bring that front and center here. So a pre-inflammation to inflammation, to MPN disease model. This was the first conference, I think, that we have all really brought this out loud. So I think that's a, a big point, this pre-inflammatory, inflammatory context. Number two, outside of the big three driver mutations, JAK2, CalR, MIPL, that we've all long known and studied, now the emergence of the so-called non-driver mutations, ASXL1, SF3B1, IDH1 and 2, and the concept that some of these mutations are not just prognostic, but also maybe predictive, uh, that now we have IDH1 and 2 um, inhibitor data in our own field, not just extrapolating from leukemia, FLT3 if there's a small percentage, et cetera. And then out of the non-driver, non-targetable ASXL1 others, as you said brilliantly, not only this will help us to understand the disease and prognosticate it, but maybe even categorize all of these entities as their own, so that, that really blows me away. A final thing I would put into this discussion as well is uh, this concept of triple negative uh, MF, which is actually becoming more and more extinct, if you will, if we say NGS negative. I, I remember Dr. Steve-O and our colleagues talking about that. So maybe only 10 to 15 of our percent of our patients are triple negative, but maybe 0% are negative if we sequence a deep enough 100, 200, 400 gene panels. So I found that to be very productive provocative, the concept of NGS negative versus positive uh, NPN. So I like this idea that you're putting forward that we will be able to further and really specifically distinctively categorize our diseases beyond morphology. Uh, Ruben? Yeah, no, I think, uh, I, again, you know, it, it's a period of time where we're learning a lot, you know, and we still have some missing pieces, how it all ties together. Uh, but like yourselves, you know, I see a, clearly a spectrum of kind of chronic myeloid patients, you know, a, and again, you see really how much overlap, both in terms of phenotype, you know, MPN, not otherwise specified, MPN, MDS overlap, you know, CMML, on and on. There, there's, there's this kind of continuum where, again, we're getting in this granularity, particularly with these other somatic mutations, you know, what are really some of the drivers, you know, if you have that P53 mutation, if you have the asx one if you have EZH1 and 2, uh, you know, or even some more, you know, less prevalent mutations, you know, you have ET, but you've got JAK2 and you got something else, you know, is, is it a bigger problem? You know, so, I mean, there, there, there's just, there's just a, a lot going on there. You know, I think we're going to continue to really evolve in terms of, that molecular phenotype. Uh, and again, I'm really probably dealing with a, a continuum of disease, but you know, molecular characterization, I think is going to become increasingly uh, critical, uh, as well as clearly as we end up developing some therapies. So if we, you know, it's, it's long been recognized that CalR on the cell surface, you know, might be amenable to some sort of 
immune-based therapy or vaccine or others. I mean, you know, uh, you know, we're not we're not there yet, but I know that much of that is 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 on the near horizon. You know, so clearly that would be a very CalR specific approach. Another session for us to to perhaps uh, to, to tackle was really the discussion of interferon. You know, and I do think interferon is really having a moment in 2020. You know, both with you know increasingly positive at, you know data from the the pegylated interferon studies. You know, it's long been recognized that the pegylated interferon alpha two A has been very beneficial, e even though there's not been a big push from the makers at Roche and Genentech to necessarily get a, a license, you know, in NPN, the utilization has, has been significant. You know, the provocative data from Tiziano's study at EHA, you know, looking at low-risk PV, you know, pegylated interferon versus, versus phlebotomy. And obviously, the wonderful sessions we had at, 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 at the meeting. Um, Claire, what were some of your takeaways and weave in the, the discussions at EHA? You know, again, I think the thing we lack at the virtual part is, you know, the, the lack of people really being in the room to talk about, you know, if that study uh, is, is it, is that enough to change practice for, for low-risk PV with pegylated interferon? Well, I think you had a, a, t a tweet poll on that, did you not? <laughs> I, I, I did. I did. I did a Twitter poll, which was like sixty something to thirty something. <laughs> yes, I think I might have been in the thirty something on that one. <laughs> I, I think uh, you know that's interesting, actually. So what we didn't discuss when we were talking about molecular was we didn't discuss molecular monitoring in terms of achieving reduction of allele burden and the benefit that might bring to patients. And, of course, the attraction of interferon is that it potentially can do that. Um, how it does it, we don't really know. And, that, you know, that's something that disturbs me a bit about interferon. I think um, uh, Tiziano's data, well, he's amazing, isn't he? He's really, truly, you know, one of the pillars of, of our, our um, field. So his data is really interesting. But, you know, I think for me, I, I'm not surprised that treatment with interferon reduces your need for phlebotomy. It should do, right? But the interesting piece for me was the symptom piece. But the, the message for me from that data was actually a bit mixed because clearly some symptoms, the microvascular symptoms maybe were improving, but there were other symptoms that were a bit worse for patients. So I would really like to see more mature data. And the thing that I find quite difficult uh, with interferon is that you know some people think it is absolutely the drug and I have to have interferon and actually it is a drug that is difficult to take I know we've discussed this many times and I, I just don't think that the benefits are really worth sacrificing one's quality of life for and I, I know that many clinicians remember using interferon for CML at a very big doses, for example, will be concerned about that. But I think it certainly is a, has a very strong um, role to play, particularly, I think, anyway, in terms of the, the JAK2 driven disease, and especially in PV patients. I think uh, this link between molecular response maybe and disease outcome as we showed in the magic PV study a while back is a really important one to try to gather going forward. I'm looking forward to seeing the five-year data from the Conti PV study and your data because I think you're doing an ET study with the ROPEG on you. Correct, correct, yeah. Um, how we use interferon in myelofibrosis, I, if we use it, I think it's a, quite a big challenge, has to be used early probably. Interested in the combination. Um, but what really worries me in the setting of ET is, you know, how much, uh, inter sorry, the setting of interferon, it's a bit late here in London. The setting of interferon is, you know, how much interferon we're actually going to have and where we're going to be able to use it and the tolerability aspect for patients. 
Correct. Certainly having worked with you in terms of discussions for, for national payers, nice things of this nature, you know, I can imagine they, they at a minimum are going to want a much more robust data set, you know, in terms of that group, you know, I think low risk patients are, are a mix, you know, I have no doubt, you know, there are low risk patients who clearly benefit from being on pegylated interferon, uh, but it may not be everyone or, or in some, it may be, you know, uh, uh, you know, overkill, you know, so I think there's a spectrum of molecular phenotype. There's a spectrum of, of disease burden. There's a spectrum of, of symptomatic piece. There's even a symptom, really a spectrum in terms of, let's say, phlebotomy burden, you know, that people experience. What do you think, Naveen? Have you started taking Pegasus yourself or Ropeg on a prophylactic basis? <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of interferon, and, um, and so for me, uh, watching our first meeting, uh, it was really cool to see Dr. Silver uh, to be able to uh, be such an active part of the meeting, uh, particularly with his, uh, his and Jerry's uh, New York meeting not happening this year due to the pandemic, and to have Jean-Jacques to give uh, his perspective with um, the ROPEG interferon. You know, look, I, I really appreciate this discussion. I think that it is such an interesting concept in, in clinic, particularly in the States, where some patients have researched pegylated interferon, and this is absolutely what I'm walking away with here. Don't talk to me about hydroxyurea or anything else. So that's pretty interesting. And then some of our non-MPN colleagues really hesitant to uh, understand and, and give the drugs. I think uh, we've worked with patients, right? So uh, dose reductions, dose interruptions, watching for the immune side effects, counseling about the psychiatric and or neurological side effects, watching the LFTs. I've had a lot of good success with pegylated interferon. I think that the ROPEG interferon could be a game changer for us in the States when you're talking about a drug that's so effective. Let's prove it here again, but effective drug easier to give, possibly less side effects, Ruben. This is something that a lot of my patients are already seeing online from meetings like ours, but their own research uh, with the approval in Europe. So I myself uh, am a big fan uh, of this, but I'd like to see how it works in ET, uh, as you said, as, as we're looking to do. And then can we confirm these results in PV, particularly the early risk? One other comment I'd like to say in the myelofibrosis, as Claire was mentioning, Dr. Silver did show his provocative data set, and it looks like we'll hear more about possibly overall survival benefit over this long-term, boy, I can't wait to see that, that full-fleshed data set and, and that paper with the suggestion being that earlier uh, can possibly overcome the inflammatory burden uh, earlier than later. So I, I think this is a really important area. And finally, the, the combi peg, right? So the combination of interferon with JAK inhibitor we know we have the two uh, European studies that have already shown safety. I'd like to see continued long-term follow-up, particularly with regards to uh, toxicity. So I actually think what's old is new again, and interferon will be more important than ever in 2021 and beyond. Ruben? I think I agree. I'm just going to, I just, uh, in, in one of my other virtual travels, uh, was having an interferon discussion with Jean-Jacques. And it was really interesting. Um, I think another thing to explore is actually how we all dose with this drug. Because uh, Heinz Gisslinger was there, Jean-Jacques was there, I was discussing, there was another colleague as well, and we are all dosing with interferon differently. Right. So right. there's got to be something there as well about how we are stimulating the immune system in a completely different way with interferon to what, what's done with the JAK inhibitors, for example. Right on, uh, but, uh, that's something else we should really be discussing and learning from each other. So sorry to interrupt, but I was just suddenly struck by that. No, wonderful, wonderful. Well, let's pivot to JAK inhibition because clearly one of our goals had been for that to be you know, one key area of discussion where we could really kind of dissect a bit into, you know, where we stand with the RUCs now is clearly the kind of the backbone of JAK inhibition, where the addition of fridradinib really fits into the equation, you know, where mamalitinib and, and picridinib, you know, potentially will kind of fit in the equation. And that before kind of we discussed both combinations and, uh, and novel therapies. Uh, you know, I thought that was really a great discussion. Uh, you know, and in many ways, I think a real positive in that, 
you know, we now have had the rent approved in the U.S. since September. And uh, again, it was a real chance to, to delve into some of the, the newer analysis that you and I have done, Claire, and others regarding fedratinib in patients with uh, moderate thrombocytopenia, uh, the uh, more longer-term stringent uh, reanalysis of Jakarta 2 showing kind of a you know, solid 30-plus response rate in terms of splenomegaly and symptom control in the second-line setting. So I think it really helped to to frame that fedratinib piece, as well as, you know, have that kind of, you know, mature discussion, you know, ruxolidinib, you know, has been our base for a long time and, uh, and deservedly so. You know, I think uh, it has aged well. You know, the comfort studies are now are almost historic in terms of time frame, but it's aged well. You, you know, it's, it's still a very good drug. It still helps folks. It still can help folks kind of across a, a spectrum uh, uh, of issues, uh, and now potentially with monolidin and pacritinib uh, coming up on the scene. You know, uh, where do you envision, in the, the UK, we know that the ability to both prescribe, you know, a, as well as your experience, clearly, you know, each country is quite distinct in terms of how, how difficult or stringent it is for drugs to be able to be used. I, I, how do you envision uh, kind of the interplay between let's say, four jack inhibitors if they're all uh, approved? I don't know. I think we already learned from the CML field, don't we, that you know, we clearly need more than one uh, TKI for myelofibrosis. They each are evolving with a different signature. Let's try to leave aside the issue of reimbursement, which is, is actually an issue across Europe. But... You know, fortunately, these studies were designed with the correct tools so that, you know, we do have the data that we would need for a nice assessment or equivalent in France or Germany, for example. I think um, ultimately it's all about uh, the patient that you have in front of you, what their disease looks like. Uh, what their tolerability might be. So, you know, indrebic fedratinib clearly has some GI toxicity. It clearly causes probably a little bit more anemia than um, roxolitinib. Um, and so, you know, I think probably people will not feel confident to use it first line until they've had it in their hands and seen, you know, a few patients see how they do with it. We don't have survival data for any of the other um, TKIs for myelofibrosis in the same way that we do have for roxolitinib. So, you know, that's really important, getting it right first time for your patient. And then, you know, trying to decide, should I jump between JAK inhibitors? Do I jump to a combination? And, and if you're talking about reimbursement, boy, combinations is going to be tough. You know, we're looking at fedratinib plus lisbatacept. I know we're going to start talking about combinations Shortly, I think um, there's plenty of scope for other agents. I think they they're all you know novel enough. We know that patients start to lose their response to roxolitinib. Unfortunately, we still have a few of our comfort study patients on drug, but most of them have needed something else. And I think you know the clear signal with pacritinib probably being you know easier to give in patients who are thrombocytopenic. A consistent uh, story with anemia and momolotinib and the, the strong message from the Jakarta 2 study which I remember Ruben we designed on the back of an envelope I think uh -huh. uh, you, know, it's, you know these are all important um, messages all these drugs are slightly different I think it's the more the better really to be honest what do you think Naveen? I, I, I totally wholeheartedly agree and I think some new areas are going to emerge for us in 2021 that I never envisioned. One will be clear, this concept of sequential JAK inhibitor therapy. So uh, whatever sequence, but uh, a patient may get uh, pacritinib uh, if, it's, if, if and when it's available, followed by fedratinib, uh, ruxolitinib, et cetera. Uh, momolotinib followed by another JAK inhibitor, et cetera. So we have not yet studied this in any way either uh, preclinically or clinically. So I'm actually very eager and curious to see how that goes. And in particular, we've never had a point mutation of JAK2, for example, uh, like, like we see in FLT3 and some of these others. So do we start to see the emergence of 
resistance mutations and, and, and other uh, sequelae of sequential JAK inhibitor therapy. A second uh, topic will be the concept of rechallenge of the JAK inhibitor. Uh, you're on a JAK inhibitor, you go off to the next one, now you go back. Uh, some of our colleagues, Aaron Gerds and others, have shown some preliminary data that that's feasible and possible in sort of a real-world setting. I'm eager to see how that goes, particularly as, as you mentioned beautifully in CML, we see that actually kind of happening all the time. And then still a third issue will be in and around stem cell transplant, uh, Ruben and Claire. We have some data now that took a while to get with Ruxo, and now actually Ruxo in an interesting twist, approved, I guess, in the acute GVHD setting. So what about picritinib, momolotinib, fedratinib, pre and post transplant? Uh, and how does that play into uh, JAK inhibitor withdrawal syndrome, Claire, and, and some of these other things that you and Ruben and others have mentioned? And in particular, the tox profiles, you both did this amazing reanalysis for uh, the Wernicke's encephalopathy signal uh, in, in fedratinib. So how, how do these uh, newer side effects uh, play pre and post transplant. Claire, I'd love to get your thoughts on that with these new agents. Yes, so uh, I think um, we have taken a few patients from Vedrasenib to transplant. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that's too different. I can't see Vedrasenib being used in a big rush for GVHD though, because I think the gastrointestinal toxicity, you know, would be a bit tricky, uh, especially in somebody with gut GVHD. Um, I do think though there is something that's really important for clinical practice. I'm super happy that you brought up transplant because you know we shouldn't be blindly cycling patients. We, we all, let's be honest, we all have patients who probably had two or three different JAK inhibitors as, as they've progressed and gone on clinical trials. But I don't, I think the patients, ultimately your thought is about transplantation and boy, we have to learn to use that modality a bit better and our timing a bit better. But I, I think it's, it's not in the patient's interest to cycle them through multiple, multiple lines of therapy. So if you're losing the response to one JAK inhibitor, probably it's the time to talk about transplant unless that transplant is really, really high risk. But, but but that segue is going to be important. And, and I think there are going to be patients whose mutational pattern means that they will respond better to one JAK inhibitor in the run-up to a transplant or as, as a kind of longer-term therapy. I don't know, Ruben, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think, you know, it, it's very interesting as, as things are evolving because, you know, we're, I think we're, we're pivoting as a field, particularly as it relates to myelofibrosis, from an era where we basically had, had two options, rupture, transplant, or some kind of combination therein, you know, and now we're going to have, you know, many more options, you know, and, and again, mindful that none of this is occurring in a vacuum. You know, while we've been taping this, there have been three more drugs approved for AML, you know, and, and two for myeloma, you know, so there's... There's almost, you know, this, this whole cascade of, of, of new available agents. And as it relates to myelofibrosis, I see that there's really fundamentally a, a couple, two different philosophical approaches in, in terms of the trial designs. You know, one is completely new novel therapy in somebody that's completely off of ruxolitinib, imidostat, IMG7289, you know, on and on. Or you take a suboptimal responder, and you add a drug on top with it, lespatercept if it's anemia, CPI 0610, Nevitoclax from Abvi, you know, and they've all been somewhat positive. You, you know, so, so we're, we've got two different approaches, completely off or something else in addition, you know, and I think what, we, what probably is going to evolve is the prior approach of, you know, you give someone something for, for years, and even if they're a suboptimal responder, they kind of stay on it. You know, so I think there's going to be, you know, you start on, on, on something, you've had a great response, and we've all had those people that have had just magical responses. You know, messing with them further probably doesn't make sense, but then you've got this whole kind of uh, other, other group. So, so uh, Naveen, maybe let me ask you, you know, the, this approach of, you know, with all these other therapies and maybe make a comment or two uh, about them, you know, we've all been involved with their, their trials and many of them are very exciting. But do you think we really need to go to the approach of you're completely off 
jack inhibition and then we're starting the other drug? Or is that really a bit more artificial in terms of, you know, the drug approval process? You know, I know drugs are trying to get approved in, uh, you know, right. as a standalone drug, and that's more of a drug development question. But, but in terms of patients, do they really need to jettison jack inhibition, you know, to benefit from a drug hitting a different mechanism of action? Right, Ruben, you, you hit on a very unique and important topic, I think, primarily to our field in MPN. And so the answer is no, there is, you're exactly right. There is a, a sort of middle category. I call it the add back or add on strategy. I'm quite pleased to see this taking off now in the last uh, one or two years. I think it's unique and important for our patients because they derive so much pleiotropic clinical benefit sometimes from the JAK inhibitor. And that, by that, I mean quality of life benefit as you yourself have pioneered and shown us making the subjective objective through this MPN symptom burden and other aspects of disease control that just don't show up um, in some other metrics. And so you keep the JAK inhibitor on for a defined duration. We're still trying to argue and decide what that is and then add in the second agent presumably and preferably something that does not have an exact overlapping toxicity profile, but possibly can have some of the same. And then now you do it. Uh, we're all involved in, in all of these, as you said. So the two furthest along are the BCLXL inhibition with Nivitaclax. You, me, Claire, and others ha have pioneered. This has been a, a remarkably encouraging story early on thus far, longer, longer follow-up, of course, needed. But exactly as you said, in this situation, you have two oral drugs, the, the ruxolitinib, and then you add in the second agent. Another uh, program with the bromodomain inhibition, as you were mentioning, also a pleasantly surprising, nice story early on thus far, suggesting that yes, you can keep the JAK inhibitor, add in the second agent, and then derive further benefit in either a synergistic and additive way. That, that's really cool. We have not yet formally been able to do that with two targeted novel agents. And then finally, there is a, a group of drugs uh, with IV drugs, uh, believe it or not, that uh, can also be possibly com combined as well. So my take-home point is, yes, not only is it feasible, but there are phase two, even leading into phase three studies with this exact approach, uh, Ruben and Claire. Now, now, Claire, I know that you know, this is a particularly uh, complicated issue for, 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 for you in the UK and many other countries because... You know, I mean, I'll be transparent. In the U.S., it sometimes is easier, you know, to get coverage for, for combination therapy, you know, than it might be in the U.K., that, that, the, that the level of evidence in terms of qualities and other that you're going to have to present to, to NICE to have them pay for these things is a high bar. You know, what are your thoughts in terms of those sorts of strategies that both show us efficacy but also show us, you know, sufficient benefit to, to, to make that case to uh, those that might be more skeptical about the expense? I think if there's evidence enough to make the case, then there's evidence enough to make the case. I think uh, one thing, as I was just remembering, it's probably uh, 10 years since we put our last patient on Comfort 2. And, and the trips I made to uh, NICE to discuss, I think, you know, we've learned a lot more about the disease since we started to go and say well actually symptoms are really important and spleen size is really important and, and uh, you know the health economists in at night the academic health economists are looking at you like you're completely crazy but let's be honest you know uh, when we take um when we've taken roxolitinib to NICE and said, you know, actually here we've got a disease, a, a treatment that makes patients with this awful disease feel better and live longer. You know, your metrics are there. If your metrics are there, that's fine. The issue is what is the metric? And this is something that I would really challenge you guys to, uh, to put in a NICE session, or maybe we'll do it in one of the European meetings. You know, what are the best surrogate endpoints for survival for patients what is that going to be is it going to be more durable spleen response is it going to be you know a deeper spleen response are we really actually going to start looking at a molecular monitoring of disease are we looking at a fibrosis reduction etc i think that will be the question from the payer but it's a good question you know would they understand that you know achieving um 
uh, a major molecular response in CML is important. They understand spleen response in MF now. We just need to understand what it is we're trying to deliver. If we're delivering on anemia, that's fine. That's clearly a, a major issue. And as, as we all have colleagues across the globe, we see that you know management of anemia is a huge challenge. So I, I think these things are fine. It's just how we do the studies and how we don't keep having a bunch of patients on a control arm. So that's a big challenge is this is a rare disease. Right. We're trying to do randomized trials and, and, you know, some really unfortunate patients will end up on a control arm. So no, in I, order to I, I, demonstrate benefit, it's a big challenge. No, no, I think that's very key. I mean, I think all of you, like myself, really chatting with patients you know, and discussing trials with them, it, it's very difficult to, you know, but patients' you know, willingness to be on a control group, you know, is, is wisely, you know, very limited. Uh, you, you know, no, nobody wants to be in the control group, you know, as, as I relate for folks. Now it's a bit like the, the COVID vaccine, and I know you, you participated in that, uh, in the Oxford study, but, but again, nobody wants to be in the control group. You, you know, if, if the vaccine's effective, you want it, you, you know, so it'll protect you against COVID. And similarly, you know, if you have a life-threatening disease like myelofibrosis, you know, you don't want to be in an arm that from the beginning of the study we're hypothesizing is, you know, is a worse arm. Now, clearly that's not always the case. You know, we remember your, your very famous PT1 study where, where the control arm did better. You, you know, then what was thought to be the arm. Exactly. Was, and it wasn't that, a non-inferiority yeah. study. We mustn't do non-inferiority studies. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I, think, I, think, I think without question. Yeah. You know, it still highlights the, the importance in this era, you know, that clinical trials are, are crucial. You know, that's really the only way we learn. You know, again, in our country, there is discussion now of people trying to you know, should we shortcut the clinical trial process to, to rapidly approve vaccines before we know they're safe or effective? You know, and, you know, as tempting as that is, you know, it leads to, you know, all kinds of problems in terms of, you know, relying on something to be effective if it's not, you know, or, you know, introducing toxicity to, to healthy individuals, you know, that otherwise would be doing well. But, you know, clinical trials in this COVID era are as relevant as any, but, but there are some real challenges. You know, I chatted with a patient two hours ago who clearly benefited from one of the trials we have, but she's five hours away from my car. Uh, she's widowed, you know, and, you know, I may as well be on the moon uh, as in San Antonio for her to be able to, to, to drive here for weekly visits for, for a trial. You know, so it's, so, so it's tough. And Naveen, clearly your, yours is a, a center of tremendous excellence for, for trials. What are some of the lessons learned during about trials and COVID? Yeah, several guys. So a uh, very important topic to me. In the beginning, we had to slow down, cut down, but we have ramped up again. I think I have three takeaways. One is, to our surprise, we've been able to conduct quite a bit of the paperwork and the kind of behind the scenes aspect of the clinical trials with folks working at home. We never envisioned that because there was never a platform for that. There was never an infrastructure. But as Claire mentioned earlier, the, the necessity of our time with these Zoom, Skype, and all these meetings have allowed that. So I'm amazed. So 80% of the workforce is, is still at home uh, here in the Houston area. So um, the ability to do that quickly and to turn around documents, that's the key. You have to have that first. Number two, the consenting process very, very onerous and difficult already to begin with. How do you consent people from a remote way? How do you uh, uh, get that approved with your IRB and your governing boards and your sponsors? And then I think the final aspect is the travel and logistics, as Ruben brought up, if someone's not going to fly, which typically would have been an hour and a half flight, but now it's an eight hour drive, what's the feasibility of that if they're driving alone, if they don't have a caregiver, if they don't have quite the funds that they would have had normally before the pandemic, or if you are in a special drug or a special program that due to the pandemic or a hurricane as we almost had here or as some of our colleagues had recently, then that disrupts supply chain. So these are issues that we have never been, a been able to uh, envision. But I will say, I wanna commend particularly my center here in Houston and at the Anderson 
we are we are up and running again. And, and as you both mentioned, the importance of clinical trials are actually now apparent more than ever before. So for those that are able to travel and are able to come to the center, we have clinical trials for everything. This is, you know, both in COVID and, and, and out of COVID, but everything is, is directly and indirectly affected. So I think those are the takeaways that yes, you can do clinical trials still in the era of COVID. They're essential to continue, but you have to be creative with the correlatives, the labs, the consent, and, and do everything in a way that is still okay uh, with your institution. Claire? Uh, yeah, actually, I uh, completely agree. Uh, um, we were actually, <laughs> we, we had to stop our clinical trials almost completely. Um, that was a national mandate. And we have still got a huge COVID trials workforce. I mean, we, we vaccinated 500 staff in two weeks. Huge credit to the trials team. I think uh, if I was a patient thinking right now about a clinical trial or a clinician talking to a patient, it would really be, you know, what is the benefit for this patient? You know, clearly that we all know there are patients who are, you know, patients progressing on roxlitinib. That's nearly a kind of medical emergency, isn't it? That's, a, that's bad news. But would I stop roxlitinib now to put a patient on a clinical trial? Well, that would really depend what the local prevalence was and, and how uh, flexible the trial regime would be. And some of our sponsors, as well as the staff, and the same as you, we've had staff working remotely, et cetera. And we've been doing uh, remote consenting too. But some of the sponsors have been amazing, you know, couriering drugs to patients. Our distance is not quite the same as yours, but we do have, you know, patients who would travel six, seven hours into the centre and, and the sponsor has been have been very flexible and I think that's been really important and yes it's really important to carry on doing clinical trials but super important to really think about what you're doing as a patient and a clinician and I think I think that's a really important point. Well it's really been a wonderful discussion maybe we'll have each of us just give kind of one one takeaway point from, from, from the meeting or, or, or platform and uh, Claire why don't you start us off? Anything's possible if you plan it and you've got the right team, I think. And, uh, you know, staying connected is so important. The professionalism of the team and uh, the presenters as well as the audience. I think it, it was a fantastic meeting, very inspiring. Please do it again. Uh, guys, for me, I think as we spend our lives and careers working in rare and ultra rare diseases, I think my lesson from our successful meeting together is if, if you are a patient or a loved one facing a rare disease, it's not rare to you. It's a disease. It's a cancer. It's what you have. And I think it's heartwarming uh, to see the messages I've from people all over the world to say thank you for having a meeting in such a quote-unquote rare uh, area. For us, this is our life and our livelihood, but to show people that there's hope and progress not being extrapolated from other areas, but that we and others are dedicated to a, an historically rare area and, and making breakthroughs. So, so I think that's kind of my takeaway and, and a successful meeting. Ruben? You know, my takeaway is that, you know, in many ways, the world has never felt smaller. Which is which is wonderful, you know. At a time where, you know, sadly there there can be political leaders that really looked at the so divisions between people on any number of reasons. You know, as a medical community, along with our patients, you know, we we are one. You know, I'm mindful really as the whole COVID pandemic evolved. You know how much collaboration there has been around the world, whether it's connecting with our colleagues in Wuhan or in China as this evolved, or Italy or, or, or South America or India or, uh, or in North America. You know, we, we, we are one community, we, we share a mission, you know, and, and love how we have been a resource for each other uh, in, in these times, both, both personally and professionally. So uh, really glad that this a meeting really provided a, a venue really for us to be able to engage and interact. You know, I think many of us are, are learning, you know, how we better can continue to engage in the future and how do we preserve, you know, some of the best aspects of live face-to-face -face meetings and still have some of those, maybe not quite as many as we had before, uh, but how do we help those things to still, you know, be inclusive 
so that we really have kind of broad-based discussions and really uh, act as a global community. So uh, really been, uh, the meeting was wonderful and this has really been a wonderful discussion. You know, as Claire said, uh, you know, one of the things I find the, the most rewarding about being in this field is I, I love the patients that I have the chance to, to meet, uh, treat, uh, and interact with their family members. And I really love the people of this field. You know, I think that this is a, a very collegial, collaborative, positive, uh, and genuinely engaged community. And, and that, uh, that is, uh, is a special thing. I think something that we should celebrate. And I know together we will solve MPNs. Maybe with that, we'll close it out. You guys take care. A special thanks to Claire for doing this late at night. Uh, and honor that uh, Vijay Hemak has uh, included us with some of these discussions. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, and Podbean, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at Vijay Hemong to join in the conversation and visit vijayhemong.com for the latest updates in the field, as well as all of the presentations and discussions from the 2020 Texas MPN workshop.